Hi, I'm Mark Anelski, the host of the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. This is episode number 94, and I'm joined by my guest, Mr. Don Paré. Uh, Don and I met many years ago when he came into my classroom at the University of Alberta School of Business in 2004 and inspired our students to think about morality, how to measure uh, the morality of boards, and how to discern those who uh, have integrity in the business world. Don is also the son of John Perry, who has since deceased, but was the vice president of Nortel, so a name from way back. And and both Don and, and John, his father, would come into my classroom and talk about ethics and virtue in a business class dedicated to social entrepreneurship and corporate social responsibility. Uh, he and my our other friend, Gary McPherson, Dr. McPherson, who founded the Canadian Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the University of Alberta, uh, while I was also starting this the Center for Performance Measurement, we had uh, many lively conversations. We were dear friends, uh, and Gary was an inspiration to both of us. So we have a good conversation today about morals and ethics in business, uh, being happy as or happy as as Don uh, talks about, and really this. In the spirit of what Gary McPherson epitomizes, you know, leading a life of purpose uh, and contributing to our economy in the most meaningful ways possible. Don is a passionate entrepreneur. He's launched many uh, successful businesses and been a, a mentor and advisor to many businesses and startups. He has a consistent track record that both investors and entrepreneurs have come to rely upon. He's had many multiple home runs himself uh, with exits between 700 and 1700 percent ROI for early investors. He speaks from experience, not from an academic perspective, and is often called upon to turn companies around or assess them using his proven innovative valuation and pivot strategy model. Mr. Perret has over 40 years of experience with high-tech companies and end-user departments holding many and various executive roles over the years. He is an international speaker on crowdfunding and an expert with angel funding. He's participated in the launch of an effective and massive program in Chile to create more than 1,500 new startups every year to deliver over 100,000 new jobs. From 1998 to 2001, Don Perret was president and CEO of Messaging Direct, which he, in which he raised $18 million in startup funding and boosted the company to number one in growth in Edmonton's high-tech sector. He's currently running an organization called Sensi, and John joins me today from his home in Edmonton. If you enjoy this conversation with Don Perret. Welcome, Don Perret, to the, the Economics of Wellbeing podcast, and uh, it's really a pleasure to have you uh, join me today on episode 93 of, uh, of a fun little series of conversations I've been having with people from around the world, and you've been a big part of my life, your father, um, John, big part of my life, and uh, I think uh, the first time I met you was, I think, through Gary McPherson. 
uh, our, our mutual friend who passed away, I think back in 2011 or something, 2010. Yeah. Um, and you and your dad, well, you came into my class, the corporate social responsibility class. The <clears> second year I was teaching it uh, back at the University of Alberta School of Business. And you really presented some compelling thoughts on uh, morals and ethics, uh, virtue even in, in the context of corporate social responsibility and ethics. And I know you, uh, you both uh, impressed and sometimes uh, irritated the students when we explored this complex issue of morality and ethics in business. And um, so I thought we might talk about that. I mean, your, your long uh, history as a business person, entrepreneur and technology as well, but just kind of reflecting on, uh, on this whole theme of uh, ethics and, and, and then, and it connects to, you know, the theme of well-being, which is, you know, why do, why do businesses exist? What's their corporate charter say about their best interests and objectives, if not contributing hopefully to the well-being of, of the, of the clients and the economies and communities they serve? Oh, keep going. I'm just agreeing. First of all, what a absolute pleasure and an honor. Uh, my father, John Perry, just thought the world of you, Mark. Just, just was so encouraged. And I think you've carried on the mantle for a lot of people like Gary McPherson and John Perry, who believed that the world needs balance and, you know talking about <laughs> ethics and morality so the story starts back many many years ago <laughs> i was working as an operational officer meaning i sign off you know on revenue and expenses and had brought my company public just a month or two before and uh the board asked me to sort of finagle a bit with the numbers and the finagling was not quite, it wasn't kosher at all. You know, it was like pushing back some of the uh, expenses, bringing forward revenue. It would pump shares up. It's kind of like, be careful what you do. You bring your company public and all of a sudden people are starting to get greedy. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Isn't that when you go public? Oh, fascinating. You're right in the middle of it, right? And I was fairly young uh, there, but uh, my father had it. He, he did one thing. If he did one thing, he did a couple things right, but he did one thing right. And he just made me um, determined not to cross the line from now, the point of view. Just as a know, point of reference, your I father know. worked for Nortel. Yes, he was trying to introduce the people part well before anyone else did in the equation of companies. Mm. And uh, he really blazed a trail there that's worthwhile discussing in of itself. Mm. So anyways, the board brought me in and said, you're fired. And I said, well, I've had three <laughs> years of 120% performance and da, 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 da. And I said, what's the reason? Well, you see, Don, you have too much integrity. <laughs> oh, I have too much integrity. Yeah, 
you know, like, you know, it's like you have to, <laughs> you have to bend, you have, have to. And I said, well, I, I, I can't do that. It's against my spiritual beliefs. So I got a lovely golden handshake and I got a whole bunch of shares, which I could cash, uh, no longer held for the two year horizon. Needless to say, there was some audits done and their actual results were not <laughs> what they were. And their share price went down from $30, $40 to 50 cents. I had cashed out at the higher level. <laughs> they were all left at the lower level. So whatever higher power exists out there, he gets back to you if you screw up. <laughs> but that taught me a lesson. I have too much integrity. Huh. I need to define a world where others have integrity and I can go work there. I remember I was fairly young and immature, didn't have your intelligence. And I was saying, why don't I come up with a map of morality? Mm. Starting off with those in jail at the bottom and working your way <laughs> up to the people who are really good, the win-win types, and be able to diagnose which one's which and go work for the companies that fit my moral type. And I called that finding me a freshwater pond and getting out of the saltwater pond. Now, I want to tell you right now, I have nothing against saltwater ponds, but <laughs> it was just my expression because I'm a freshwater fish. And I started to talk to people about it. They really got excited about that concept. Yes, yes. And so I, I would go and give a course or a presentation, ask everyone there to rate themselves in the four you know, levels of morality. And the results were fascinating. So, so remind me again, level one, and so one to five, right? So you create this normative relative it's scale. One, one to four. One to four. Four are people who are in jail and they're dishonest. They're visibly dishonest and they kill, they rob. Three, which was a small group when I started off, were people who would like that company I worked for. Look, Don, nobody knows who will get away with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then level two, actually, I know some people, even family there, which is, Ah, don't rock the boat, keep your nose clean, uh, but in your contracts, put clauses that will get them and, and, and give to you, you know, it's kind of the legal, but look after your own best interests. Mm -hmm. Level one is a good Samaritan. You're always win-win. I've never had a lawsuit, um, except recently, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> uh, when someone just didn't pay, pay, pay me, but 90, I've done hundreds and hundreds of agreements never had a lawsuit because i would always you know play we we play it as a win-win so <clears throat> i would ask people to rate themselves as a group in these four categories and uh, the mba students started out really good but over time you know i've noticed in general that the amount of Level three, do it if you don't get caught. It's gone way up. Mm. Level two's have gone way up, which is keep your nose clean, don't rock the boat, but legally protect yourself. Way up. Leaving less than 5%, which used to be 20% in the level one, the win-win. 
So unfortunately, um, our morality level from the samples, the thousands of people that I've gone through with, has declined remarkably over the last 20 years. Mm. And I can't speculate as to what or why, but I've observed it in my own business. For example, I had one lawsuit. The person wouldn't pay his bill, just refused. Took it you know, before it went to court, settled out, fine. But the, the, the impunity that people have, so many of them, on taking the high road. Nah, we're not taking the high road. We're taking the road that's in my best interest. You know, one of the things I've always felt is important is are you service to self or service to others? Something mm. that, Mark, you talked about. And I, I'd have to say that um, I've become, I've gone from being predominantly service to self to service to others. Mm. So I, I've been in both spots and I'm right to being the pot that called the kettle black, you know, I've been been there. That, so uh, never a judgmental thing, but it's um, it's really nice. If you can look at the world in a different light, and I don't know how to explain it, you would know better, but if you're in a family or a community or an organization, think about the how to everything you decide upon is for the best interest of the whole, the group, the community. And that's a very different process of thinking. I've had people come in and say, why would you think that way? Well, it's best for the company, but it's not best for you. Oh yeah, that's right. Why would you do that? That's stupid. Why would you do that? So many times when I was starting out, I, I, looking at a deal and I say, well, what's in it for you? Because I, that would give me the, uh, the information I need to close the deal. Right now I say, Hey, what's in it for your organization? I'm here to serve your organization. I'm not going to pay you money on the side. Reminds me of another story. I had a real story. I was trying to get some investment for a company in Alberta and there's not a lot going on. There was only two players really doing investment in Alberta, met with them. I had a good company and they said, of course, we'll need to be on the board $5,000 each a month personally. I said, well, that's not in the best interest of your company, nor is it of mine. Don, come on. You'll never get a cent if we turn you down. You'll be dead. (laughs) So I guess I didn't know that I had broader reach than Alberta. I got 15 million US in in the door in a month. But from Toronto, uh, from, you know, the US, California, Texas, Oklahoma, even. So we're there at a conference saying, ah, yeah, we turned that guy down. He's going nowhere. I said, well, didn't you hear? He's got $50 million worth of uh, financing. What? That's impossible. <laughs> well, he's not going anywhere. There's no way. This guy is not going anywhere. Not in our province. And oh, about a year later, we sold for 75 million Canadian. Wow. And he was at another conference 
telling us how we were going nowhere. And the guy said, well, he just got sold for 75 million. <laughs> wow. We got 1700% return. It's a stellar. So that's the type of thing that exists out there. Mm. Um, don't really um, know why it's getting worse, but it is. It's like people are, are lost sight of, let's make things be a winning thing. Let's not try and bring down others. Let's bring them up. So that's uh, the uh, two points I wanted to raise on that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this raises, I mean, some of the issues we discussed in my class, which, I mean, I remember I would bring you in, I think, class two after the syllabus was presented. And, and we would talk about this, this tricky area of uh, virtue, of uh, morals. And, you know, and it came, came to me, uh, understanding of that the corporate legal document, I mean, couple things reflect on that corporate legal document, which defines, at least in the Canadian law, the Alberta corporation documents, section three is called the objectives of the company, uh, or in the US would be the, the best interest defined as best interest. And I was amused because we have this mythology of profit, ma- well, it's a mythology of profit maximization. That's why companies exist. And to your point, it's like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just selfishly, greedily, uh, you know, take as much as you can. Um, so that's an interest because I realize that a lot of lawyers will tell you not to put anything in that section called best interests or the objective statements. And I said, well, what if you just, what if you wrote like happiness, you exist because you want to contribute to the happiness of Edmontonians or wherever you're operating. And, and then, I mean, it's a rhetorical uh, position because People say, well, who would audit your financial statements to, to prove that you contribute to the happiness or well-being? And, and I said, good point. What, what lawyer is going to, what judge is going to rule on whether you, you know, but I can understand if you say nothing, if you, if you don't hold yourself accountable for anything, then you can do anything you want. Uh, and, and this, You're really debating the difference between level one and level two. Yes. But, but the, the point of, you know, there's this debate like, are we wired? Are we are we hardwired in the business world to be greedy, inherently greedy, or are we more hardwired to be in service, to be in a shared asset kind of economy of of mutuality of relationships? Which I mean, of course, I'm making I've made that argument, but the pushback against that, and when you can prove that empirically and financially that sharing is better than agreed based approach to doing business. Um, so that's one reflection. The other reflection is, Don, can you reflect on what happens I mean, when you go from a private company to publicly, you go to an IPO and you go public and how that shift, do you experience it uh, yourself when you're younger, but I'm fascinated with what happens when you could go from a private company condition in which you could define your best interests in terms of happiness and yet you go public and suddenly you're pressured to play a different game and compromise your integrity and all those things well your discussion there covers a whole bunch of things uh, to answer the first part um essg is 
pendulum always goes from one side to the other. There's a current strong pendulum that I'm certainly supporting that's growing the level one moralities. Mm. And that's where you're looking not only for economic, you're looking for social and sustainable results. So those are all measurable things. And a lot of companies, I've done 160 strategy sessions with companies, which can correlate very nicely to the legal documents if they actually did that. But they certainly do correlate in how they measure themselves because they don't measure themselves from a legal perspective. They measure themselves from their strategy plan. And and more and more, the set of the strategy is to deal with economic issues, but also social returns and sustainability back to the world. Mm. So that's that's the biggest thrust I'm noticing, okay? Now, that's what's keeping me alive to day and functioning out there alive. Well, interested <laughs> and and fun and 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 energetic because yeah. to watching companies like that come to bear, like Opus, which is actually going to clean up the oil sands and bring out uh, flowing oil at the same time. Right, right. See, those are companies that are turning on the new wave of investors. Mm-hmm. I get my return. Oh, but also I'll be proud. Uh, yes. So that's a, a wave that's starting. Mm-hmm. Let's all encourage it, please. Yeah, let's now, <laughs> to answer your second question is, yes, I was in a company. So when you're starting as a startup, EESG is not quite there. It's called survival. <laughs> but everyone pulls together and they work together. And the common good is survival. It's beautiful. We party. We love each other. (laughs) Then what happens is we go public. We have $40 million U.S. in the bank account. And something called greed. Well, how much am I going to get of that? I want my salary increased. Can I have some shares? So when that company sells for $75 million, I had one executive running around realizing that he didn't have enough shares and others got more shares because they bought more. And he was really upset. I mean, it's sad. The company did very well and you did well, but why, why this, this, you know, competition or this jealousy and envy that sets. Yeah. The envy. Yeah. The envy is terrible. It makes it makes life not so much fun. Not so Mm. much fun. So that's the answer to your second question that you had. Uh, this is, um, I'd love you to, to address, or let's talk about this interesting issue, which is when a company goes public. So I'm always being amused with the stock market. What is the stock market? And so you think, all right, that everyone aspires to you know have their IPO and go public, whether you're Facebook, whoever. But my hunch is that, the only thing happening in the stock once your company's gone public, the the initial infusion of cash, the initial investor funds that went into actually allowing that company even to be and to go public has already been realized before it even starts to trade. 
So the question is, what's actually happening post-IPO to that company's, um, I would say, uh, capital accounts, right? It's equity, because my guess is that no new infusion of money is actually occurring in the market itself, in the trading. The trading is just trading perception of the value of that company up and down, but no new infusion of cash. Is, is that... Is that a fair reflection or am I completely out to lunch on? Well, I think one of the things that you made a point, a point on is fair. Um, liquidity is the reason you do it. Right. But as a, uh, once your shares are public, you can sell more of them. Right. Yes. So if you need, let's assume you're expanding to Europe. You can do another round, right? You can issue more shares, yeah, yeah. Out of treasury and bring some more in, yeah. Right, right, right. Which dilutes some people when they find their shares are not trading the way they like to, and they've got fifty million in the bank, they'll buy some back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it becomes a little bit of a trading concept, as you pointed out. Right, right. Your question. So I think you've pretty seen, pretty well seen it. The two key points is. Liquidity and further offerings to fund uh, location growth or a whole new product set. Like look, look at App Apple, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a company started off with a computer and then went into the uh, you know the the phone world, right? Yeah. Well, they they needed a subsequent uh, funding round to do that, but they're worth like three or four trillion dollars now. People made a lot of money there. Absolutely. So I want to I want to shift a little bit into uh, you might call it more the woo woo discussion, but I remember that that class uh, you came in it was a it was a summer or spring class in May I believe and you came in and and uh, there were there was a, a young fellow named Joey Hundred in class and he wasn't a credit student he was just from the community and uh, <clears throat> you had presented your one to four and and then you asked the question I never forget you said. So let's talk about conscious. I think you said, let's talk about consciousness because, you know, in the, in the spirit of the word integrity. And you said, you know, some of you can see auras, you, you know, how do you discern conscious? Let's use the word conscious capitalism. What is conscious capitalism? Are they business people who have integrity or, you know, or, or something oh, better? You tell, tell them, how, how did I tell them? How, and, and you said, you asked, well, who could see Mark's aura? against the whiteboard and I and I'm like what what's an aura I had no idea but you lit something in me that has stayed with me ever since that yeah you know, I never thought and and you but you touched something kind of esoteric uh and I unpacked that with Joey 100 after the class I never knew, met this never knew this guy before and I said what did you how did you see color how did how do you discern someone's integrity in a sense through what you're seeing beyond what the face or beyond right how do you pick up on those subtle things that in a sense define someone's integrity can you can you reflect on on that i mean what what you did that day i mean changed my life and well you know it's interesting um there there was an aura scene and you did have an aura and the same aura that I saw was the same as what others saw. And of course, we all know scientifically with uh, 
the new type of photography that they've done, that they pick up these hearts, which are energy ribbons around a human being. Uh Now, I don't exactly know what's doing the interpretation of the colors, whether it's the energy has certain vibration and we pick it up as certain color, but it's also picked up that way in what's it called? Kaley, uh, some there's, there's a name of the photography that, uh, a cerulean photography. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. So you can take apparently with Polaroid technology, you can take the photo of the auric field of a person and, yeah. and some naturopathic doctors will use this for diagnosis. Well, then I'd say they're smart, but, you know, just like the people out East who have been around for 4,000 years that have yeah. discovered things that we still haven't got our brains around yet. I mean, we're infantile in understanding the electrical magnetic uh, uh, um, distribution systems in the body. We don't know what they are. Right. And yet they govern at least a third of what happens in the body. Right. You, you go to someone from the East, they understand. They understand all those points. And they've cured people based on those points. So, and this is a realm of, you know, I've practiced uh, Qigong and Tai Chi. And, exactly. and this is this ancient realm of Taoism. Uh, and, and you're right, in the East, it's still practiced. And it's still, it's a modality of healing and understanding that the West, through its allopathic medicine, has never fully... And, and the reason I'm, I'm raising that is because I'm really intrigued because I'm a measurement guy. I'm intrigued with this question of, can you actually, in a sense, assess the integrity of something through other protocols other than, I mean, the yes. Scientific, the scientific protocol works very well with ours. Right. So I've been in this situation. My daughter actually uh, is better at it than I am. <laughs> And we'd sit down and someone, and we both look at the person's aura, take a separate piece of paper and write it down. Then we give the two pieces of paper and they look at it and go, holy, it's identical. How? How do you do that? <laughs> That's the scientific method. If you can repeat the experiment, like the same double, result. Double blind, right? You get the double exact amount. So, yeah, it's, it's a very good skill to use to keep troubled um, potential prospect clients out of your system and it's a big part of also um backing up my morality test with the aura the auras that i do um because they have gone to hell in the handbasket as well over the last 20 years <laughs> now i can teach anyone how to read an aura to about 75 percent of the people can read it yeah um, and it's a technique it is a technique, and, and I know Joey tried to teach it. I am not a good student of seeing, but I could feel them. And that I know it's th- this is the first show I think we've ever taught so about the subject. You've got seven. You've got fifty percent of it. Now you need to transmit somehow. Understand the feelings and the color come together. Yeah. So you're close. You're close. But I think again, so you got to remember: there's feeling auras and there's color auras. Yeah. So when it, exist. one of the subjects I, I know I'm diving into my favorite subject here is because I'm intrigued with this protocol of measuring the integrity of something. And there is a modality, uh, naturopathic doctors use this uh, and it's called, generally it's called muscle testing. And some people say, oh, that's woo woo stuff. But it's really the body's ability to discern 
um, whether one food is better than the other food and whether you're paying attention to your body uh, is one thing, of course, but the fact is our bodies are like sensitive tuning forks. Okay. And my argument is if that's true, if the body can pick up subtle energy fields of food and, and literally tell you, don't eat, Don, don't eat that orange, eat this orange, don't eat this egg, eat that egg, or this kind of whatever, don't drink coffee, don't drink alcohol, whatever it is, right? Um, to then be able to navigate life that way would be fascinating. But to also navigate in the business world to say, how do I discern the integrity of a company? Uh, what are the criteria by which we look at the different asset classes in the company and discern which companies are optimizing their return on an asset, measure measurable and verifiable? That's the holy grail. That is, that's what I'm saying. That's why you heard it first. Because <laughs> you got to, first of all, start off and say, well, which are the important measures? That's right. The criterion. Yeah. And that, that, that could be fun. The morality level and the aura of a company are two measures I use. Oh. Companies have auras. Really? You walk into a company and you look around, close your eyes and you know it. So it's not just color, but it's a feeling in the room, in the boardroom, in the team. And, and, and this is another area of, of interest. And I've, I've had this discussion on this podcast because I'm now interested in the consciousness of built form, of interior design of buildings in which people occupy. So it's no surprise when you walk into a room and you see a certain color paint or painting or wall covering, it could be wood, that you're affected by that interior design. So, oh yeah, the whole concept of feng shui. I mean, you're 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 absolutely correct. I mean, what was the name of that book where it talked about the energy that comes off a of flower and you know off of things, the energy that comes off it, how that can feed you? Yeah, ex that that's my point. What's the name of that uh, book? Oh, it's very famous, famous, famous book. Um, on on feng shui or no? Um... No, on the energy levels of. Uh, various ob objects and things and how en energy itself is something that exists and can be sensed. And, and the, in the quantum, like even, you know, we can get into quantum physics and all that. And, and that's, what's so exciting now is that science is a C was circle or. Uh, oh, very, very good book. Yeah. But the point is like all of these modalities that are now verifiable in quantum physics or right. Yeah. Or, or so I, I guess what you're saying is the criteria, is it interesting or not? And can it be measured? Because if it can't be measured, it's hard to use. Well, it. but the, to your point on integrity, though. So if we, you take the word integrity, which means whole or complete, and, and we create, we establish criterion for different asset classes. We say, I'm looking at a forest. How do I know what the integrity of the forest is? Well, I'm a forester, so I know that there's certain species that I expect yeah. to see in the boreal forest that define the integrity of the boreal health, the health of the boreal forest, which is a complex system. Now, if I take uh, infrastructure, a, a vehicle, I know the integrity of the vehicle by running diagnostics on the engine. And the same is true for a person. 
Exactly. Or a relationship. And then it's a question of is that is if is that whole analysis what I'm looking for right now or not? Right. Different, different groups will look at a different, you know, if you're in in the Indian, you know, the First Nations group, um, they look at whether somebody's good or bad in a very different way. And and you know what? I, I kind of like their way, you know. Because yeah. and it's so subtle. Like they say, well, we checked yeah. it out. I said, what do you mean? You yeah. checked me out on LinkedIn? No, not on LinkedIn. Well, where did you check me out? Well, the elders, they uh, they reflected on you in the sweat lodge. or <laughs> And like, how did they pick up on my energy? They never met me. What? Why do people talk about a higher power? Why do people talk about an energy that pervades our whole earth? The vortex, everything. you know, there is other ways to measure, other ways to see. Why do people have auras? Yeah. Um, yeah. What quantum entangling, just how far does that go? Has the brain been way ahead in quantum entangling than we are? You know, you, you never know. Have the indigenous population been doing quantum entangling from the beginning? <laughs> from the beginning? And we were just they used like... to call it smoke signals, but you know, they probably knew more than we did. So, but I, I kind of like the issue that they raise, which is, that the white man really came to uh, North America with a view of greed and, you know, possessions and materialism and his own best interests. Well, and, and this, is, this is what's so fascinating. Oh. It's what, what was the trauma that led to our kind of cultural shock, shock, our, our, our predisposition to that. economies it's, of it's lack you know, like the difference between, you know, like the Indians would have a tribe or, or a group, and it was everything's what was best interest of the tribe or the group. You know, the the white men were the only people they've seen in the world that could turn the wagons in a circle and shoot at each other. <laughs> and, and then <laughs> then took title, like brought their flag and said, Well, we have the right to uh Turtle Island because it's empty. And no, it's not empty. We we're here. We've been here for five thousand years, and uh, and it's fascinating. So a different philosophy completely, an ownership philosophy. Yeah, yeah. But all all in the spirit of of the difference between a mentality of lack and scarcity, and one of abundance. Like the indigenous people say, why do you think they do the potlatch? Because it's it's a ceremony reflecting abundance. You, you actually overgift to your neighbor because. It's kind of like a joke. It's like it's expensive to have a potlatch, but you only do it maybe every 10 years. But you throw a big great yeah. party and everyone gets incredible uh, loot bags and everyone every year enjoys, right? The that beauty of abundance versus we 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 just get we're addicted to the scarcity model. And then it breeds greed and all the other things that you've experienced. And it actually takes down the level of abundance with that approach so we actually work against each other in the end yes because when you have 10 people pulling in the same direction you move quickly if you have 10 people fight fighting fighting you don't move all that quickly yeah so i think the indian culture um has certainly been adopted by yours true truly i'm part indian but very small part algonquin really so yeah but uh what I've 
perceived is that working with quite a lot of people from the indigenous areas that um, they agree with me, although they had it way before me, which is the greater good. Right. Simple. So, so getting repeat. I'm for the greater good. good. I'm now, for the greater good. What's amazing, Don, is that, uh, and I work with, uh, I am working with the Anishinaabe uh, yeah. Robinson here on uh, Treaty Nations on the North Shore. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we're going back to those original treaties and saying from 1850, and they're your relatives um, saying, it was fascinating because the British, the brilliance of the British, you know, system and Rome was, that they codified their laws. They had the quill, they wrote it down. So they have a remembrance of what was said. But of course, whoever wrote it down, whoever writes history is the one who maintains the remembrance versus, you know, in the indigenous way, it was, a, well, you know, uh, we remember from the stories that Chief so-and-so, he was a great leader, his name was Don, and he, you know, he spoke these things and we carry the memory down to the generations and the judge will say, well, that's not good enough. You didn't, you don't have it written down. You don't have it on a, in a word document. And, and yet the spirit, what they will say was the spirit of the treaty was the relationship of work journeying together. You came here, you would have never survived on your boats <laughs> at uh, Jamestown right? You'd never survive the winter if we hadn't brought you on shore and, and warmed you up, made you hot chocolate or whatever, you know? And, and then the, then the, the disaster just from that day on, um, but that spirit of walking together and sharing in the bounty, right? Was, is always being the spirit of the treaties and, and not, I didn't learn any of this in school. And I'm only now discovering the wisdom of, of those agreements of that. They weren't even contracts. They were a special, they were a relational agreement that we were all prosper if we get along. <laughs> now that's the part that's starting to come into our society now. With, I think ESSG is the first formal entry it's not covering off all the items that you know it's not. But I'm happy that it's taking care of a good chunk. Wow. And from there will come change. From there will we'll become, you know, like you're talking right at the inception of <clears throat> supporting funding and building uh, new enterprises and communities that will make positive changes on the scale I've seen you develop. Right now, we've only got it to ESSG, but that doesn't, you know, they added another S in the last year. It's the <laughs> ESG. That's right. Economic sustainability, right? Yeah. But now what they've done is they've added ESSG. Well, it doesn't mean that a, some other letter couldn't go in there over the next year or two. Mm. But the question is, which one? What else do you want to formulate as a major? thought process in the creation it's co-creation if we're co-creating what this framework it, do we use and you you've said that for me it was a word that we uh talked about last time with my my last guest was you know there's a big difference between a creditor and a debtor yeah. and it turns out 
we're actually not debtors at all. We're co-creators. We're, we, we create. That's what the creator gave us, the capacity to co-create and co-steward. Um, and that, that's what I love to, to end on is that, that reflection. The indigenous people say, even though, even if we have treaties, which are in a, a relational agreement, we understand we exist only because the creator allowed us to be and allows the creation and the nature to be. Uh, therefore, you can't define us as anything in your courts, under your laws, because we're a child of the creator. When you and get like, into both creation and greater good, the whole tort system falls apart. Falls apart. And that's what's starting to have a, you know, I got to tell you, the impact is already big. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not negative on anything, but some of the accounting that you, you may be aware of, is just wrong. Just wrong. Yeah. Purely. It's, it's wrong. And I have people like, I don't know. Have you ever talked to Don Didick? Yeah. There you go. He'll tell a failure. He's a great interview on what we're missing. So in some ways, we've got what I would call the spiritualism, which is becoming more of a driving force in our life, mm -hmm. which questions some of the um, hard and fast infrastructure things yeah. that don't make sense. Like, for example, if we suddenly in, did finish inventing the flying car, yeah, that may have an effect on our, our roads, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, right? So we're we're in the you know we gotta understand we're in the midst of that. Look look at what the oh, uh, absolutely you know, we're in the midst of uh, I think my my colleague Robert McGarvey would say an asset revolution, yeah. uh, assets that have never yet been. I mean the the amount the amount of imagination, the amount of that. I would say, what, what happened to original intelligence? Why are you rushing into artificial intelligence? You know, the, the wisdom traditions of indigenous people, right? Their ability to sh do crazy the, things the like. The biggest problem with artificial intelligence, I'll go on record. It's <laughs> got no wisdom. It's got, got no, no wisdom. wisdom. No, no wisdom. It's, all it's got is knowledge, but it's got no wisdom. No wisdom. It'll never have it. It'll never have it. So artificial intelligence is limited and people need to understand don't be worried about it it's got no wisdom yeah i, I'm, I know I'm the serenity god. prayer god yeah. give me serenity to accept things i cannot change well ai will just bang its head against a brick wall till it falls apart yeah so it doesn't understand that give me the courage to change the things i can and give me the wisdom to decide the difference. Well, I, that that's not something an AI is going to be able to understand. Those the serenity prayer is beyond beyond AI, beyond by, beyond any robot, you know. And yeah, uh, it's true. And and that's what I say. So like, I think I, I think mankind needs to stop being so insecure. We're at the top of the chain because we have something no one else has: wisdom and a desire for the greater good. There we go. You can't find an AI product that can do that. They can't even figure out what the greater good is. <laughs> There's no algorithm for the greater good. Well, no, you can. And if you figure it out, that'll be great. Well, that's that's the point I'm trying to make too. Is like I can write that algorithm. I can write the al 
the so what's it what's the happiness algorithm it says well i can i can kind of tell you what the happiest people i mean if, if happiness is defined by longevity then the sardinian men on the planet have the longest life and why do they live so long let's go and find out we'll go to the other talk to the guy and he's been miserable the last four 40 years <laughs> well i sort of screwed that one up <laughs> that's right but you know it's like okay you want this but you know you can look at someone's aura and know if they're happy or not hey thank you don so, super hey? efficient Super. Like I, I'm looking at your right now, and you're happy, happy, happy. In fact, if given my pensions for loving frogs, you're happy. <laughs> All I can wish on anyone is be happy. Just be happy. I love that. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell that to my Toastmaster group next weekend. Just yeah. be happy. Just be happy. Ooh, I'm happy, and I know it. <clears throat> you know. <laughs> so let let's riff on the on the last point this has been so much fun because I, oh, I i always call it like a it's like a lazy river you know inner tube ride it's like i don't know what's going to happen next but um but can we end on the reflection of, of joy what what do you think what do you feel is joy different than happiness in your mind yes because joy is one of the things that contributes to being happy and joyful moments are those moments where one could say, if one has expectations, let's assume that one wishes to help other people uh, in their um, launching their company. And they get a big investment and a huge success. And everyone decides to have a party and just hug each other. There's a lot of joy that comes out of that so various activities events have joy and if you've got lots of joyful mo moments you're probably happy right right I, su I suspect your survival group had a lot of joy joyful moments absolutely and the other thing that gives you longer life that they prove proven is a good gut laugh yeah, I don't know if you've ever sat around the table and started to talk with somebody about something, and all of a sudden you're laughing so hard that you're coughing or you can't breathe. Now you might say that should take years off your life, but that'll put months of of years it, on your life. Yeah. Well, my my mentor uh, Judy in New York uh, in Brooklyn, she she inspired me to finish my first book, which I had no interest in finishing. And and she said, "There's one rule I will give you." You need to laugh or make people laugh 30 minutes a day. And I said, okay, assignment, <laughs> you know, and, and she's right because there's, there's such a, a release, uh, especially during this dark pandemic times, like we need to laugh. <laughs> it was a well-known um, strategy for, you know, when, if you're in the darkest of time to laugh at it. To figure out a way to laugh at it. Yeah. And there were people who could do that. And they would be great to mobilize the troops, you know, or to make things that were in a really awkward, bad situation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so I, those are, those are your lead leaders, right? Th those are leaders. And I, you know, I'll end with the reflection. I, you know, too often we take ourselves way too seriously. I, what a joke. 
you know, we, we've just unraveled accounting and, and measurement and integrity. And, and the joke is none of these things can actually be measured in any way that we use, we have for our tools now. And I said, do you think you can measure anything? You can't measure GDP. You can't measure the integrity of a company, uh, really. And so the, at the best, we're guessing and making it up as we go along, which is kind of the cosmic you know What's the biggest problem lots of people who aren't happy have is they're too busy doing well on the measurement sticks and they're unhappy. They're miserable. Right, right. Well, my assets are up, but I'm miserable. <laughs> Why am I miss, 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 miserable? One thing my mother said to me is misery is optional. It is. It is optional. Wow, that's good wisdom. Well done. You Thank you. Get that from an AI computer. Can't get that. Yeah. So uh, I won't even think of that. Misery is optional. Can you imagine an AI person coming in where they wouldn't know what that is? They couldn't come up with that. Yeah. I was going to ask the uh, ATB robot the other day. Actually, I asked, I went up to the robot and I said, uh, what was your well-being ROI last quarter? And it just stood there in silence. It didn't know how to respond. So it was just sitting there miserable. Miserable. It, it couldn't compute my question. I'm like, oh my, I'm so done with these robots. Like, but you see, you're so far ahead of the thinking. Although the masses are starting to follow where you are. Thank God. Keep up here. Just keep going. Yeah. Keep it going because. Um, because there's a lot of people, too many people out there who are miserable because they simply haven't come to grips with, you know, it's not all about the scripts. Now, you know, the scripts say eh? the scripts on TV, the scripts here and there, the, the capitalist elite people that put scripts on you and how you should live. And well, you're not happy. You're not hopping around here. No, thank God. You know, frogs don't listen to any of those elite scripts. Well, uh, Again, a, wis a wisdom keeper, uh, my old friend, Oris Andre, who beat leukemia when he was 65, the doctor gave him six months to live. And, you know, he would, and he was a marketing guy and he drove me crazy most of the time, but I love the guy. He said, you know, uh, are you leading your life or just following it around? And I thought, you know, and to the tribute of our, our great friend, Gary McPherson, you know, he was an example of leading a life and in spite of his physical constraints and wow, what a, what a man of integrity and wisdom. And yeah, I only wish, you know, that he could have stayed around longer, but he stayed longer than he, they said he, he could have, he was yeah. supposed to die in his mid twenties. He stayed on until 63. I think it was. That, that's right. I mean, he was so crude and so <laughs> offensive sometimes, but you know, his like, magic was, He'd find humor. Oh, yeah. His humor was outrageously good. He made so many people blush at the sugar bowl. I mean, <laughs> it was great. No, we, we loved Gary. It was fantastic. And those are moments of joy you and I have had together. Nobody. Yeah, absolutely. Look at your face when you talk. You can tell joy anytime. It's just non-verbally, it's there. Yeah. Bright smile. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh. Well, this has been fantastic. Well, Mark. thanks, uh, thanks, Don. I know we I you sure we are stirring the pot. Oh yeah, man. Let's you know, preacher. But I like the smell of the soup. It's nice. I like the like the smell. I like that. Well, you look marvelous, darling. So uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast.